So welcome to A Correction Podcast. Today, we are really excited to be joined by Isaac Abote Bunu Akolgo. Am I saying your name correctly, Isaac? Yes, you are. <laughs> okay, great. Who is a PhD candidate and junior fellow at the Africa Multiple Cluster of Excellence at the University of Beirut. That's in Germany, not Lebanon, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, welcome to the show tonight, Isaac. I'm really excited to talk to you about a topic I have to say I'm, I've been very curious about, but I don't know a whole lot about, and it's about the financial crisis that's happening right now in Ghana. And I guess I'll start by saying that, you know, I had not been paying a whole lot of attention to the, the economic news out of Ghana. And um, in my mind, in my mind I, I had this impression that Ghana was sort of the thriving economy, uh, a model for sort of what African development should look like. And then, you know, in the last month or so, there's some news about the severe economic crisis. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, one, was I wrong with the impression that Ghana was doing quite well? And then maybe you could talk a little bit about the short-term causes of this financial crisis. Yeah, Lev, thank you so much. I, You, you are not wrong. And Ghana has been uh, sort of a mixed case at one time held out as a good example for you know, Africa, whether it be it economic development, generally speaking, or democracy as, even if it is about elections. So historically, Ghana has been seen this way, I mean, around the world, especially post-independence, the, the massive development ambitions of our first president, Kwame Nkrumah, and his Pan-African vision, and then even after the crisis, several military rules and you had the structural adjustment issues where Ghana was one of the first African countries to be enrolled, praised for being a structural adjustment success. Yeah, so that image of Ghana constantly seen as success, but then several cycles of crisis and is is familiar. It is not uh, out of uh, nothing that many people uh, would consider that way. Even in the sixties, there there's this popular account of Ghana being compared with South Korea and, and the others at similar development level. Yeah. So the, the 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 recent crisis that Ghana now faces has been in the making, seen mostly as a consequence of COVID-induced spending or the Russia-Ukraine war, but there are more structural problems to, to, to where we are today, generally. So I, I would just briefly say this, and then, uh, yeah, that is how we are, where we are today. Not mm -hmm. necessarily uh, COVID-induced spending. So government at the moment is, is really struggling with a domestic debt exchange, part of the requirements that the IMF uh, deal that it is striking the, uh, the the debt restructuring program where the government is asking for three billion dollars to come out of its, its debt crisis. The government is required then to to restructure its debt, and it started with the domestic bondholders seeking to delay uh, payments until 2024. But that has been met with significant resistance, and it is generally a certain level of of chaos economically and, and yeah at this moment Ghana doesn't appear like a good 
example. In fact, in, in Kenya, the, the popular economist David Indee just uh, told Kenyans that uh, K, uh, they were headed where Ghana is now. So you can see that now Ghana is no longer that mm-hmm. good example. It is, <laughs> it is a case to be avoided. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how severe is the crisis? Uh, how, how many people have lost their jobs? Yeah, so uh, the, the crisis, if you you look at uh, since 2018, which which was also driven by the banking sector crisis, these are not separable because the banking sector crisis where the, the government spent over $2 billion had several job losses. You, you I mean, official statistics are difficult to get, but estimate range over 40,000 indirect jobs. Directly, the banking sector, about 6,000 people lost their jobs. And and we see the consequences today than we, we had even imagined uh, at the time of the banking sector crisis. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about, you're saying this is has its roots in not so much in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, though that's made things worse, but in a, it's a sovereign debt crisis. So for the audience, if you would, maybe you can talk to us about how Ghana got itself into a debt crisis in the first place. Yeah, so uh, Ghana, like many African countries, to understand the, the, the cycles of debt crisis, even this present wave of debt that, that has spread around the globe, I mean, starting with Sri Lanka and, and now many other African countries, you have to look at it in terms of the system into which African economies have been integrated. I mean, I'm talking about the global capitalist order. But then you also have to consider the, their political history. So the debt issue can basically be, be tied down away from the immediate questions of COVID and Russia, Ukraine, to the structural problems that a country like Ghana has faced. And, and what are the structural problems that I'm talking about? A Tanzanian scholar Issa Sebzi talked about the structural disarticulation, uh, that what colonialism did to African economies like Ghana was that it created a structural disarticulation in the economy, which is to say that colonial economies were shaped to produce what they do not consume and to consume what they do not produce. You are largely into resource extraction, raw material uh, production to meet the demands in, in Europe. But then you're doing this at the expense of uh, agricultural production that is really necessary, the consumables. And then you have to depend on European finished goods. What this does is that the country now is set in motion to, to try to meet a liquidity constraint because you do not acquire this impulse, I mean, sorry, impulse with local currency. So you would have to export enough raw materials to raise enough liquidity to meet your, your, your import demand. So this is where the, the, the problem begins because you would certainly face liquidity constraints as exports are not really given their real value in the international market. This is the beginning of the crisis. When I say the beginning of the crisis, the, the liquidity constraint that requires African countries to borrow. Once you, you get into this uh, stage, 
especially since uh, structural adjustment, then you face with a very unjust uh, multinational lending uh, system where you, you pay more for borrowing, you, you borrow in currencies that you do not, I mean, foreign currencies, what, what others have uh, talked about as original sin. So the mix of these issues, the historical structural problems of most post-colonial economies and the unjust transnational lending system evidenced in, 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 in the issues of uh, original sin, those of high interest payment for African euro bonds, especially since the, the dominance of private uh, commercial lenders. So these are the issues, the more systemic and I think far-reaching uh, issues that have uh, led us to where we are. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I want to get specific if we can. It, you know, my understanding is that Ghana is one of the world's largest producers of cocoa, right? So this is the 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 raw material that goes into making chocolate. And it's lots of small farmers who are engaged in this uh, productivity and or this production. And this is for this is a chocolate's not a product that lots of people, I guess, in Ghana are consuming. It's mostly for the European market. And then after that, the American and Japanese markets. I'm wondering, I mean, so that sounds like the way what you've described. So there's this thing that's being produced in Ghana, it's being exported, other people are consuming it. But what I'm not clear on is, okay, so the farmers are getting paid um, money for this. Why aren't they able to use that money to buy the imports that you were talking about? So you said there's a liquidity crisis, but why isn't there enough foreign money available? Yeah, uh, first... The, the the farmers now, uh, or the government of Ghana who buys the cocoa from these farmers, as we know, do not really get a good value for 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 those exports. But beyond that is the the, the price fluctuations within the the, the global market uh, system. So apart from because once you exporting raw material, which are not really processed. You're not going to get any significant value apart from the, the price differentials that we are at the international level not paid the right value, which is having its own colonial uh, history to some extent. Apart from that, there are times when the prices of commodities like cocoa and even oil that Ghana started exploring in, in 2011 would rise and, and induce some spending, mostly along election years. But then once there is a, a, a drip in, in, in the prices at, at the international level, you are not able to raise enough liquidity to, to meet the export, I mean, so the import uh, demands that you, you are faced. But th this is not random. This is part of uh, the, the nature of the system to keep you in, in, in sort of the lending game as as others have spoken, because if you can break out of this dependence, then certainly northern uh, industries and economies that, that depend on exploiting you uh, are certainly not going to benefit. So it is to the, to the benefit of generally the, the northern capitalist interest that 
you you remain in this uh, sort of structural problem. Yes, I guess I have two follow-up questions. One, what are those colonial roots of why it is that the farmers in Ghana are not getting paid what you call the, the fair amount for the cocoa that they're producing? Who is who is selling this on the international markets? I imagine they are not directly going to the international markets themselves. So what is what is actually happening there? And what are those colonial roots of, of the unfair payment? In, in the case of Ghana, you, the government of Ghana has a, a cocoa marketing board whose duty is to basically buy uh, from local cocoa farmers. So the farmers, like you said, of course, don't trade in, 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 at the international level. They, they are supposed to be paid. And there's a difference, actually, between the world market price for the cocoa and what the government pays the, the local farmers. And the cocoa marketing board buys these, usually paying them far less, and, and most of these farmers have remained in, in poverty, and then sells at the international market. But like you said, you, when you, you trace this back to the immediate uh, post-colonial era where we, as a country in terms of Ghana, ran into crisis, there, there, there was an attempt to to look at how do you devalue I mean, the, the currency to make those exports cheaper, to attract the, the, the demand that you, you seek externally. So this is this is basically what, what has been the case. And the government does the trading, mostly even itself not receiving, like you, you, you rightly noted, the, the right price for, for its exports. So I'm wondering why when Ghana goes to initially, and this is the early 80s, you tell me if I'm wrong here with the history, but they go to the the IMF, they get a big loan, and they agree to go along with the structural adjustment programs that the IMF is um, is imposing. And why is it that Ghana isn't taking that money and using it to add value or process the raw materials so that they're not being sent to Europe to be processed and made into, I don't know, Godiva chocolate or lint or whatever. But instead, it's it's happening in Ghana and, and there could be some real value there. So what what is the barrier to doing that? Yeah, so the, the, the structural adjustment, like you rightly mentioned, the, the problem with the structural adjustment is it comes with conditionalities. I mean, it came with conditionalities and what were those conditionalities? So the, the basic problem in, in, the, in the midst of the 80s crisis that the World Bank report said that basically the, the problems with the economy is that there's just too much government intervention, there, there's just too much regulation, the government needs to roll back retreat, allow the private sector. So the basic solution was to deregulate, to liberalize the market, and allow for private market-based solutions to the development problem. So the, the conditions that came with that structural adjustment uh, loans that you, you described are themselves even crippling. They, they are not 
focus on, like you said, a diversification of the economy to, to export and finish. It's just more about increasing the export value and, and volume of, of those raw materials that had been produced even in the colonial time. So, but the, it was not just the 80s, but the other, the subsequent structural, I mean, debt restructuring programs that Ghana has engaged with the IMF are usually laden with uh, heavy conditions. And those conditions are that the state rolls back and, and allow private sector to come in. So it is difficult to blame the, the Ghanaian government or the economy generally for failing to transform these raw materials because it doesn't even have the policy space to make these decisions. Isaac, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just so I can be clear. So a government like Ghana goes to the IMF, takes out a loan with conditions, and you're saying the IMF doesn't allow, through those conditions, the imposition of those conditions, doesn't allow Ghana to start adding value at home, but really is encouraging Ghana to export raw materials. Because that the argument is, you look, if you devalue your currency and you export raw materials, this is how you're going to get a lot of foreign capital. But what I'm hearing you say is somehow that's not working out because they keep coming back to the IMF and restructuring their debt. And you would assume if it was, if the plan was working, they wouldn't have to do that. So what went wrong? Yeah, so uh, th that that is the, the paradox of this, the, the whole idea of the, the, the IMF. And you keep going because for this, this is the 17th time Ghana has been to the IMF for a debt-induced a restructuring uh, program. And if you cannot solve the problem, imagine that the IMF was a, a consultant you engaged to, to solve a problem, you wouldn't go back to that consultant. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, over 40 years. Yeah, so the, the, the fundamental problem is the interest at play, which is that the focus is not to help countries like Ghana get out of the problems they are in, which are structural and systemic. It is more like we have argued uh, several uh, times and, and many others have written on this, is just to sustain capitalist accumulation and not to be, to, to pursue conspiracy, but I mean, there is enough evidence and to argue that the IMF is, is an extension of U.S. policy and, and generally those of, of the global north, highly developed countries. But Isaac, there were some years, right, where Ghana was seemingly doing well. Was that just kind of a mirage that there was, I mean, so what was happening in the last decade that everybody was saying Ghana's growing I remember a couple of years back, it sort of doubled its GDP growth. That was not nothing, right? Yeah, so I I, I did this uh, paper in 2018, which was published at RUP, where I responded to this conversation about the African rising narrative and, and this high growth. Yes, it was growing, but like I argued in that paper, Afro-Euphoria, is Ghana's economy an exception to the growth paradigm? 
the sources of the growth is is what matters because the growth is driven largely by consumption and growth figures mean nothing in themselves if we measured growth by by expenditure and you borrow to consume it could look like you are growing like <laughs> the, the growth was not driven by real production so yes there are periods when most African countries have grown significantly, and Ghana has. Even uh, in 2014, shortly after Ghana started oil exploration, GDP you know, was at 14%, and in, in its highest in the last uh, two decades or so. So the economy grew, yes, of course, but it is not enough to look at GDP figures because they don't themselves mean which sectors of the economy are growing, which is uh, mostly that is in the extractive sector. And, 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 and a debt-induced uh, growth doesn't really uh, mean so much for the real economy. So it's misleading, like uh, I, I said in that paper, to, to rely on these growth figures. So I want to tell you what I learned about the Ghanaian economy, and I want you to tell me what's right and what's wrong about this traditional model. I, I, I understood the economy post-independence to be one where the government was encouraging lots of agricultural exports, particularly cocoa, and they were then taxing those exports and using the tax revenue to try to industrialize. And the way I understood it was this was Nkrumah's way of having you know, fast-paced industrialization um, is that the correct narrative? Is that is that what happened after independence? Yeah, yes, to, to, largely yes. That that is the case. That's what exactly happened. But like I uh, started the conversation with that decision. I, I mean, th this this approach to industrializing was bound to fail, not because of Nkrumah's uh, profugacy as you know, pro some propaganda has, has been waged, but because the nature of the economy, it was not going to be sustainable. You, the prices, like in 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 the seventies, the price, the shocks in in the seventies, is going to affect you because once you rely on on those exports to finance the industrialization, and there's a fall in the price for those commodities that you are exporting, you are not going to have enough. Uh, financial resources to to get the capital impulse that you need to drive the, the, the industrialization. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. exactly, yes, you are right, but it was bound to fail, not because of uh, the government, the Nkrumah's government, but because the system was wired in this way, it was going to, to at some point in time, uh, fail. Yes, you are. Yeah, I mean, so I guess that the, my follow-up question would be, Nkrumah seems like he understood how both colonialism and then neocolonialism operated. He wrote a lot about it. Why was he um, pursuing this this path, which was which was bound to fail? Yes, uh, he had no. I mean, there was no option, and he, his I I mean, I, idea was basically that at some point he would, he would get out of this. But like you said. 
in, in neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism, he, he acknowledges that the new stage uh, post-colonialism was a, a very subtle but more dangerous uh, situation, not just the, the import-export uh, issues that we talk about, but even the, the financial system. Because in, in that, Nkrumah talks about the fact that in place of colonialism is this neocolonial, which may be manifest in, in military bases as we see in, with the US uh, today, but more dangerously about the control of the, the, the domestic financial system. You, you have foreign banks that dominate the, the local banking system. So yeah, Nkrumah had very little he could do and without continuous support domestically, you, 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 you cannot really blame Nkrumah and yeah, he couldn't do anything about it. It was just beyond Nkrumah's control. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna talk finally about the financial sector in Ghana Today, my understanding is that this this current administration came into power in, in 2017, and then, as you mentioned, they embark on this two billion dollar kind of I don't know cleansing of the financial sector. What what actually was that, and to what extent did that lead to the problems that we're we're seeing today? Yeah, so uh, like you said in in the 2016 election campaign. The current president, Kufuado, uh, led an agenda of promised industrialization and and free education, and many people who are jobless, and that is the case in for most African countries, felt like this was a a great opportunity to to look to the early independence industrialization dreams. So yeah, he was elected in 2017. The government started, but Far from, like I said, in, in, in that paper that I published at Rope, far from industrialization and the other projects it promised, it, it said that it identified that the banking sector had certain problems. There were a lot of non-performing loans and weak corporate governance within the bank. So I embarked on this banking sector cleanup. But what was supposed to be a cleanup ended up in the collapse of several banks. Seven, seven commercial banks, over hundreds of microfinance institutions, and and massive job losses. But that it also cost 2.1 billion to to clean the financial system was a bigger concern for many. So I I I wrote on this within the the rope debate on on finance capitalism in Africa to try to explain that yes the the Bank of Ghana may be blamed for poor regulation of the banking system, and these banks may also be blamed for not uh, managing their banks effectively. But the problem is much more than that. So that 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 is the the point from which I I, I wrote that road briefing on and the banking sector collapse. But just to be clear, the problem is. That there's not enough credit, right? Like the 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 international banks and the local banks aren't really into the business of lending domestically. Is that right? Exactly. So the the problem, like you you said, practically on the ground, was that 
because Ghana's banking sector is dominated by the foreign bank, there's there's credit repression. And credit repression, basically what you said, that within even the mainstream economic logic or accounts of foreign banks in, in emerging or developing economies, foreign banks tend to lend less to domestic, private, small-scale uh, firms. The reason the, the, the mainstream literature gives may include that uh, these banks are not able to assess SME's credit worthiness because of informality, because of a lack of formal collateral. But that is not the case. I mean, there is more to, to the credit repression by foreign banks than this. And it is that these banks are more focused on, like the colonial era, increasing uh, shareholder value, repatriating and uh, profits. Basically, it's just accumulation. And, and they are not really wired or interested in domestic-oriented development, which, which will bring the job creation. So yes, my main concern was that by cleaning the banking system and, and further consolidating the foreign control of the domestic banking system, you are going to increase the credit repression. And, and this is not only peculiar with Ghana and several other African countries where the, the banking system is dominated by foreign banks have, have really suffered uh, this sort of credit repression, yes. Isaac, maybe you could explain to me how that works exactly, because my understanding was that banks have to lend in order to make money. I mean, that's that's how it happens. Um, so how are these banks able to uh, suck up all the domestic money and send it abroad if they're not lending at all? Yeah, uh, not that they are not lending. They're... Okay, so one they are not lending mostly to uh, small, medium-scale enterprises, which which are crucial to uh, a very inclusive uh, job-creating uh, opportunities for, for people. But when they do lend, they are mostly lending to multinational corporations. So it is not generally to, to, to households or to small businesses. When they do lend, they lend to, and most of these corporations are even foreign entities. The other thing, especially in the last decade, is that uh, the lending is not really the, the main source of, of, of revenue or for profiting for these banks. It is from government securities. In fact, today, as we speak, the, the crisis has exposed this because most of the banks are, pro are on the verge of collapse because they had acquired a lot of government bonds. So these banks are basically engaged in, in trading government securities because they are safer and because of the high interest that government offers. This is the primary source of uh, the, the government. I'm sorry I do not have the figures uh, at the moment for you, but, but there's a very significant portion of bank profits coming from their trading activities in government securities. So yes, the, the, the last, in simple terms, the last source of uh, the profit is coming, especially in the last uh, two decades from, from the trading government bonds. And I'm wondering if the government goes back to the IMF 
and gets another bailout, I wonder if they will pay off the debt on those securities to the banks first in order to save the banks. Yeah, that is actually uh, my fear. I we, We're probably going to see the repeat of the, the U.S. crisis here where the taxpayers' money and or pensioners, even ordinary people who have put their money into the system, is going to be used to, to bail out the banks because the government has just indicated that it's going to set up a, a stabilization fund of, of, of a sort to save these banks, in the name of save these banks, which the, the banks gambled. They, they gambled, they tried to make, uh, to profit from the system and their gamble has failed like it did in the in the US crisis and they should pay the price for it and 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 if there is any bailout it should be focused on 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 the ordinary Ghanaians. unfortunately the 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 debt restructuring program is is more is it's not penalizing pension funds and when i say pension funds not necessarily the the, the funds themselves but people who have contributed mostly People going on retirement, and a lot of the, the the demonstration happening now in Ghana is is that why is government being sensitive to to people who have worked and 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 are on retirement and contemplating rather salvaging banks? And that is my fear, basically, that at the end of the day, bondholders, especially external bondholders, and and the banks would be rescued, they would be paid their money, and the ordinary Ghanaian would suffer.